Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. We come today to the second Sunday of Advent. We're considering the Advent story from the Gospel of Matthew is our beginning part of the consideration of this entire Gospel. And this morning we'll be considered, considering verses 18 through 23 of chapter 1. Verses 18 through 23 of chapter 1. This is the very Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit." And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Let us pray. O God and Father, you have done great things. You have done great things through your son, Jesus Christ. You've done great things by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray you would open our minds afresh, open our hearts anew, that we can see and wonder, be transformed by your salvation. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, you remember, we saw that Matthew opens his gospel actually with a title, The Book of the Generations of Jesus Christ. It's a title not only for his gospel, it's a title for the entire New Testament. And we saw that it is also in this very title an announcement that Jesus is a new Adam, that he has inaugurated a new creation, and therefore everything that Israel has been waiting for and everything the world has been needing has been answered by Jesus Christ. So he begins with this grand statement, this grand indicative. And then he follows it up in verses 2 through 17 with a genealogy. And in this genealogy, he provides not only the bloodline which led to Jesus the man, but also gives the story of Israel. And through this genealogy, as we saw last week, very uh, artistically, very skillfully, he establishes through the story of Israel the hopelessness of Israel and therefore of all mankind. So he begins with kind of a, uh, a one-two punch, starts out with this great announcement of the world is new, a new Adam has arrived, heavens and earth are new, everything you've been waiting for has been accomplishment, and then follows up immediately uh, by showing how that's impossible. So this is Matthew's way of preparing us for the advent, of preparing us for the incarnation, this impossible thought. 
He uses the impossible to prepare us for the impossible because his title and his grand announcement does not go together with the story he tells in this genealogy. How can we have the world made new if this genealogy, this story of Israel is true? So this apparent contradiction, this impossible situation is designed to prepare the audience for the incarnation because the incarnation is the only answer to the hopeless situation set forth in this history in this genealogy. It is the only way you can have cosmic salvation brought about out of hopeless sin. So down through history, different people have scoffed at the incarnation. People reject the incarnation. And they almost always do it on a priori grounds. In other words, they have a certain commitment, um, certain assumptions to start with that caused them to reject the idea of the Incarnation on its face. We, of course, have a secular naturalistic culture uh, today in which we live, which rejects the Incarnation on a priori grounds. That means pursuant to a prior commitment. And it's uh, on the basis that they up front reject the idea of any possibility of the supernatural or of a miracle and because the incarnation would certainly qualify as a supernatural miracle they reject it but many of the ones who rejected it uh, in the first century and in the years of the early church rejected it on a different a priori ground it wasn't because they rejected the idea of the miraculous indeed the jews who rejected jesus embraced the idea of the miraculous very uh, greatly. They acknowledged and confessed that God had done many great miracles in the past, and they looked for those miracles in their own day. And the same was true in the early church uh, when uh, different Christians uh, and different movements within Christianity, and some of them ended up leaving Christianity, struggled with the idea of the incarnation. It wasn't rejecting the miraculousness, it was rejecting the idea that God, the Creator, could enter into the creation without ceasing to be God, the Creator. And that even if He could, that He would, that His character would allow Him to do so. So all of these, to all of these groups who reject the Incarnation, it is rejected up front because the idea, for one reason or another, is repugnant or ridiculous. But to all of these people, Matthew wants to show... First of all, the absolute necessity of the Incarnation. And secondly, the wondrous character of God who would bring it to pass. So Matthew is calling upon everybody then and now to reassess two things. To reassess the true condition of man and to reassess the true character of God. And when we come to these things, not in an abstract way, but when we come to this question of the condition of man and the question of the character of God, when we come to them through history, which is what the genealogy forces us to do, then we reach the conclusion at verse 17 that man's condition is hopeless. The power of death working through personal sin is so great, is so subtle, is so insidious, that all the truth, all the blessing given to Israel ended up 
resulting in her sinning more and incurring more condemnation. That's what Paul says about the law in Romans 7, and he says that was one of the purposes of the law. So contrary to many of our brethren, and they are our brethren in the Christian church, down through history and still today, the purpose of the law was not to present some alternative mode of salvation. The purpose in terms of, it was intended to show sin and to highlight sin, as Paul points in, in Romans 7, but what Paul points out is that the way that the law highlights sin is not presenting in some crass fashion some other way of salvation, a works way of salvation, as opposed to a loving grace way of salvation. No, it points out the power of sin and the insidiousness of sin precisely by presenting God's salvation by grace. Loving God and loving man It's given to a redeemed people in Israel, but with one thing left out. God in man. Left out. So what shows the power and insidiousness of sin more? The fact that the law is really a false road, it's a false advertising way to the life, or that it really did set forth life and ended up in death? That's Paul's point in Romans 7, is that that which is intended to give life, he says, results in death. That, that which is intended to give life comes to me apart from God in me. It comes to me, and what does it make me do? Sin more. It makes me sin more. When I hear, you shall not covet, there's something weird in me. Coveting. Oh, there's an idea. It makes me covet more. And you know that's true. There's this perversity within us that the law brings out. And so, all of this was intended to show the hopelessness of man, and this is where Israel's story ended. Remember always that Israel was not a nation to itself. Israel was the representative people of all the peoples of the earth. It was the representative nation of all the nations of the world who have ever lived. Any ethnic people living at any time, or a mix of all ethnic peoples from all times would have done exactly as Israel did. And so what this means is really and truly, when Israel, having been delivered and saved by God from Egypt, builds the golden calf and says, let's go back, we all built the golden calf. When Israel received manna from heaven and then complained, we hate this stinking manna. We all complained, we hate this stinking manna. When Israel stoned the prophets, we all stoned the prophets. When Israel crucified the Son of God, we all crucified the Son of God. We all said, we will not have this man to rule over us. We all said, we have no king but Caesar. We all said, give us Barabbas, not Jesus. So when we come to verse 17, at the end of this little encapsulation of human history through the history of Israel, we must all conclude that the situation is hopeless. That's exactly where Matthew wants us to be. There is no way, then, 
for God to fulfill his promise of salvation to Israel and the world because the Old Testament is a long, 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 long history of God's efforts to do just that. Only when we have come to that point of impossibility are we ready for the incarnation. Only when the darkness is complete are we ready for the rising of a new sun. Even so, there's something in us that wants to think, but wouldn't it be a violation of God's divine nature to do that? To enter into the creation, for the creator to become a creature and still be the creator. And even if we want to say it's theoretically possible, why would God do such a thing? Have you ever thought of that? Why would God do such a thing? Would any one of us do such a thing if we were in God's position? Would that be our solution? When it would be so easy for God just to, to do away with the world and the human race, just like I could wad up this piece of paper and, and throw it away. No more problems. Why would he do it? Would we do it if we had all power, if we had all knowledge? The whole idea of the Incarnation is so revolutionary. And that's why so many people, even those who believe in God generally, who believe in the miraculous, who believe in the supernatural, have stumbled over the Incarnation and just rejected it up front. It is so revolutionary. And that's why Matthew, in our text today, takes pains to hammer it in. He leaves no room for mistake, no room for slipping off the point. He says, uh, he establishes and affirms the incarnation three different times in three different ways. In verse 18, he says that before Mary and Joseph, Joseph came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, he says that the angel appeared to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in verse 23, it says that all of this was done to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. The virgin, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, as we've said... The revolutionary nature of the Incarnation, what causes people to stumble over it, other than the modern secularism of our day, which just re rejects any concept of the miraculous, is sometimes an a priori type of commitment, assumptions about the condition of man, that man is not completely depraved, that things aren't really that dark that it's not actually necessary. Maybe God could send us a good example and a good teacher, and that would be enough, giving us the correct example and the correct information, the correct teaching. The human race could then be perfected, and the sin problem would be dealt with. Okay? So some people think maybe things aren't that bad. And so you have a, a strain of thought that wants to say Jesus was a great teacher, Jesus was a great moral example, but he was not God incarnate. Of course, Matthew wants to, wants to have us reassess that and see that the condition is really completely hopeless 
apart from God entering into man, which begins by him becoming a man. There is no such thing as God coming into us apart from God, first of all, becoming a man in Jesus. That is the only way that he comes into us by the Spirit. And then we also have a rejection of the idea that God's nature and character would permit him to become incarnate. We have a certain concept of God that, that just doesn't go, it just doesn't fit. And all through Matthew's gospel, beginning right now, he calls upon us to reassess those two things over and over again. The condition of man, the true condition of man, the true character of God. He makes us reassess that again and again, and he keeps pointing us again and again to the same conclusions he's already brought out here at the very beginning, that the condition of fallen man is hopeless. Any plan of salvation that depends in any part on fallen man is doomed. And he asks us again and again to reassess our concepts of God's true nature and character until we come to see, as Paul points out in Philippians 3, that God's nature, his true nature, and his true character not only permitted him to become man, to be incarnate, but demanded it. That's what Paul is getting at in Philippians 3 when he said that Jesus, even though he existed before in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be clutched. It's, the Greek is difficult there, but what it seems to be saying is exactly this. We think of the incarnation this way, even when we accept it. When we first come to accept it, we think of it this way. In spite of the fact that he was God, he became man. Isn't that amazing? Well, yes, it is. But that's not amazing enough. Because what, what the Bible is telling us is that it's not in spite of the fact that he was God, he became man. It's because he was God, he became man. And we'll see more of that as we look at these names. It is these truths that Matthew is signaling to us and pointing us toward for the first time when he gives us these two names to, uh, for Jesus. And they're gonna, these names are going to point us to the incarnation and right past the incarnation down the path to the cross and to the grave. The first name is Jesus in verse 21. Now notice that it is God through the angel who specifies that Jesus shall be named Jesus. And it is God through the angel who specifies why. He says, He shall be called Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Now, Jesus means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. Now, sometimes you, you hear the word Jehovah. Sometimes you hear the word Yahweh. And it's really, it's the same word. It's just a, it's kind of a, a debate among scholars about the correct way to pronounce the Hebrew word because the Hebrews, um, it's, it's just a, it's, let's just say it's a difficult language for us, okay? So Jehovah or Yahweh saves or Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah saves, Jehovah is salvation. And Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. 
So Jesus, Joshua, it's the same name. And this name points us to the true nature and character of God. He is God who saves. He's not God who happened to save. No, he's God who saves. He did what he did because of who he is. In the Old Testament, God promised to save. And keeping his promises was one of the prominent aspects of the Hebrew concept of righteousness, keeping one's promises. Thus, God is called upon again and again throughout the Old Testament to save and forgive according to his righteousness. It is God's own name that is at stake in whether he keeps his promises to save. So Jehovah saves is what Joshua's name declared in the Old Testament. Joshua's very name, every time you saw Joshua, or you thought about his name, it called upon you as one of God's people to trust God's promises that he would save. And where God is bringing his people is to the point of concluding on the one hand, this is impossible. There is absolutely no way this is hopeless. But God has promised to do it. I have no idea how he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it. But he promised to do it. And my trust is in him. And Joshua's life provided a type, a kind of picture of what Jesus, the greater Joshua, would do to save. And that is he would bring God's people, leading them out of captivity into the kingdom. Jehovah saves is also what Jesus' name declared to all of those who were around him. He was the greater Joshua to bring to pass what the Old Testament Joshua could only provide a picture of, bringing God's people out of captivity, out of slavery, into the kingdom. That's the great contrast. So Jesus is truly Jehovah saves because he will live up to his name. He will deliver his people from their sin. And this is important for us to see. Israel, who represents the human race, could not enter the kingdom when all was said and done for one reason. Why couldn't she? Why could she never really inherit the promises? Well, her own personal sin. Her own personal sin. There were a lot of other factors involved. There's always Satan Satan with his lies, Satan with his temptations, Satan with his spin. And there's always the world, not talking about the physical world, but the world that kind of set, that, that fallen humanity in surround sound that makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. That's always present. But none of that matters but for the flesh, that is, but for the fallen nature of man. It is the fallen nature of man. It is personal sin. It is that which causes us to sin, which allows Satan's wiles and the world's temptations and its spin all to take effect. Remember, the power of Satan by which he exercises his rule is death. But the way death gets into us is through self-injection. And that's what personal sin is, self-injection beginning with the sin of Adam. And so this is the heart of the tragedy and the hopelessness. This is the sinfulness of sin that Paul talks about in Romans 7. 
This is why, even though the New Testament plainly tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, that is to conquer Satan, to conquer death, to overcome the world, the thing that is specified here that he's going to do is to deliver his people from their sin. Because until you can do that, nothing else matters. And that puts him, of course, on the path, the inevitable path to the cross. And where we will see most vividly pictured the true condition of man and the true nature and character of God. Because at the cross, we will have God's own people saying, we will not have this man to rule over us. Give us Barabbas, not Jesus. Crucify him. We will see that, and we will see God himself in Jesus, the God-man, going willingly, knowingly, eyes open to the cross. The second name that is given to us is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, he's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 7, 14, and uh, we'll do a little bit more unpacking of that at some other time. We won't do that today. Let me just, uh, just say this. Isaiah 7, 14, which is, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That is part of a long passage, and what Matthew doing, is doing here is not just proof-texting one verse. He's bringing to mind those who knew the Old Testament, this whole passage in, in Isaiah, which runs all the way through chapter 9. And on the front end of it, we have this statement, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Jesus. And then more toward the end of it, we have that very famous passage in chapter 9, where it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. You have here the incarnation pointed to and hinted at as in many places in the Old Testament. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end, um, and so forth. So Matthew is evoking that whole passage, and he's saying it is the incarnation specifically that begins to fulfill all of that. It is the necessary first step to fulfill all of those promises. So this name, Emmanuel, God with us, speaks to how the God who promises to save will keep his promise when everything seemed hopeless. So Jesus, Jehovah saves, is Emmanuel, God with us. God becomes one of us, and then he goes to the cross and to the grave. As it is said in Hebrews, in chapter 2, since the children... The children whom God is saving, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is God the Son, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And then it says a few verses later, in all things he had to be made like his brethren. And it says that he had to do so for four reasons. Number one, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Number two, that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Number three, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest uh, in all things pertaining to God 
and number four, that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so you can see how God becoming incarnate in Jesus was essential to all four of these foundational aspects of salvation. In the days of the early church, the incarnation was the first major doctrinal issue that they had to struggle with. In the, in the very earliest days of the church, beginning with the Neronian uh, persecution, um, there were waves of persecution. And so there was quite a bit of time there, a couple hundred years, where the church basically was weathering wave after wave of persecution and simply remaining faithful, simply providing an apologetic and a testimony for the truth of the gospel was the major issue at hand. But with the conversion of Constantine and with when Christianity became, uh, first of all, uh, acceptable and not persecuted and ultimately the official uh, religion of the empire, um, then some doctrinal uh, wrestles and tangles began to come about. And the very first one had to do with who is Jesus. It had to do with the incarnation. It had to do with, is he fully God and is he fully man? And there was a smaller group that said, that they had some kind of Judaizing type tendencies that said that Jesus is fully man, but he's not God. He's God-like, but he's not actually God. They rejected the divinity of Christ. But the far greater group that just stumbled over the revolutionary concept of the Incarnation said that Jesus is fully God, but he's not fully man. He's either the appearance of a man or he's somehow the shell of a man with God dwelling in that shell. Um, you know, uh, but he's not fully man. They just could not. It seemed repugnant that God could fully become man. And the early church recognized pretty quickly as they looked at the scriptures a couple of things. One is, if Jesus is not fully God, and if he is not fully human, fully man, then he cannot save. And they recognized that what's at stake here is not some theological debate over some high theological concept. What's at stake here is whether anybody in the history of the world can be forgiven of their sins and delivered and enter into life eternal. Whether God's purposes for man and the earth can be ever restored. That's what's at stake. Because they realize that, look, if he's, if he's only partly human, then only to that extent can he save us. Because only to that extent is he one of us. Of course, if he's not fully divine, he's not free of Adam's sin. And he cannot be our substitute and our representative. He's, he's going to have the dragon's poison inside him, so he cannot be the knight in shining armor. But they realize, look, if we say that God, um, that Jesus did not fully have human emotions, that means he can't redeem our emotions. If he did not fully have a human mind, that means he cannot redeem our minds. If he did not have a fully human body, he cannot redeem our bodies and thus give us the resurrection. 
And so they realized that this really was at stake and how necessary the incarnation was. The second thing they recognized was that what we're really dealing here is with corner stakes. We're dealing with corner stakes. And that's what you find when you look at the Nicene Creed and then the more uh, detailed uh, uh, Chalcedon Creed where it really specifies that Jesus had a fully divine nature and a fully human nature, two natures that are distinct, which did not mix, but nevertheless he is one person. These kind of things, these things that seem to be like we're stating paradoxes and contradictions, what they're really doing is setting out the corner stakes. What we find with the incarnation, we often find with Bible truth. It's too big for us. It's like trying to survey a piece of land that's infinitely big. The Bible is very clear and very simple about where the corner stakes go. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. It's very clear. It is very simple. It's not difficult. The difficulty comes in when we stand at one corner stake and we can't even see the other one. It's so far away. And we can't see how these corner stakes line up. And we think to ourselves, you know, I could explain this thing if I could just move this corner stake just a little bit. Then I could explain this. Well, what the Bible tells us to do is drive the corner stakes, drive them deep, and then don't touch them. We can describe and explain things to a certain extent. Some can do it better than others. But none of us can do it completely. And so that's what we want to do, and that's what the early church did. Well, let's quickly consider just a few ramifications then of the incarnation for us. And as you go through this Advent season, I hope you will think about all over again the great love of God that is shown for us in the incarnation. In John 3.16 Philippians chapter 3 and many other places, we see it was the love of God the Father that caused him to give his son. God so loved that he gave his son. And it was, the, it was love that caused the son to give himself. And Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we may know the love of Christ, he says, which surpasses knowledge. He says the height, the breadth, and the depth, and the length. You can't survey it. You can't know it. But he prays that we will know it. The extent of God's love is what Satan never took into account. It's interesting. Satan expressly took into account God's love, but he never took into account the extent of God's love. It was only God's love that allowed Satan to believe that he had stalemated God into carving out of God's kingdom a kingdom for himself. Apart from God's love for man, Satan knows this is no stalemate at all. Because God will simply wad the whole thing up, including Satan, throw it all away, no more problem, no stalemate. Satan knows about God's love for man and the earth. That's the only way his plan has, seems to work at all. And he has an apparent stalemate. He counted on God's love. What he didn't count on was the extent of God's love. That God himself would become man. 
that God himself would enter into the creation and then go to the grave. That he did not count on. And we need to consider not only that God did this, we need to think of the fact Jehovah is salvation. He does what he does because of who he is. People and theologians, philosophers, some people mocking other people just wanting to know have often tried to think, why did God make the world? If God knows all things, he's all powerful, then he knows about the fall. How could he know about the fall and all of these kind of things? And again, we get into these questions. I don't know, but I'll, I'll venture one thought. It's not an explanation. It's just an observation that apart from the cross, apart from Christ becoming one of us, going to the cross, going to the grave, dying for our sin, we really would never know the extent of God's love because the creation just doesn't tap his love out. All the glory and the goodness and the creation and us in his image and crowning us with glory and honor. I mean, that's unbelievable love. But it doesn't begin to tap God's love out. It doesn't begin to even that to show us the extent of God's love. It also shows us God's love for the creation. Now, when you think about the incarnation and the birth of Jesus, you can see there's a, a very much a similarity with Adam. God made Adam directly, okay, by his spirit. God made Jesus directly by his spirit. So Jesus is a new Adam. He doesn't come from a human father, just like Adam didn't come from a human father. Both Adam and Jesus came directly from God the Father. But Adam was made from the earth. Jesus was made from a woman. And was made from a woman who was a sinner. She was godly, but she was a sinner, virgin. This, this is an interesting difference. Because it is a way of, of us seeing God's love for this fallen race. That he's not starting all over again with a, with a new earth physically from which he's going to make this new Adam. He's making this new Adam from a woman who is part of this current creation and part of this current uh, fallen human race. This is a way of God showing. And there, there's two Greek words for new, something that's new. Okay, one means it's new from scratch, starting completely from scratch. The other one means it's new being brought out of something else. And when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament passages about new heavens and new earth, it's the second form of new. It's the second form. It's not new from scratch. It's new being brought out of that which is existing. It's new by resurrection. And so the fact that God makes the new Adam from a woman shows his commitment to our humanity and to our human race, that he's not going to water it up. He's going to restore his purposes through resurrection. And finally, I would like you to consider what I call incarnational assurance. Many times we want knowledge in the form of an explanation. We want things explained to us. We want to know why. Why did this happen? Why did this person die this way? Why did this evil things happen? Why did this not happen? We want to know why, and we want to be able to explain. 
We want to be able to explain the incarnation. We want to be able to explain the sovereignty of God and yet the free agency of man. We want to be able to explain a million other things. And God doesn't always give us that kind of knowledge. He gives us a different kind of knowledge. Assurance. And we see the greatest assurance through the incarnation and the going of Christ to the cross. We need to pay attention to how God is speaking to us because really this kind of knowledge through assurance is greater than knowledge through ability to explain because it is more profound. It's like the difference between somebody who wants to know every detail of the space shuttle. You can know every detail of the space shuttle. No one person does. Or you could know the person who designed the space shuttle. We don't know how this uh, story that God has written all ties together. There's so many loose ends. There's things that happen that we don't understand. There's things that happen to us. There's things that happen to people we love that we want to be able to make connection. We want to be able to say, look, we have this promise. All things work together for good to those who love God. And here's how it works. Here, look, see, here's where the story goes. See how it connects up, and this is how it all comes out at the end of the rainbow, and everything's happy. We want to be able to draw all those connections, and so many times we can't. It is through the incarnational assurance that even though we don't know how the story ties together, we do know the one who wrote the story. And we know, because of the incarnation, and the first advent, we know that the one who wrote the story wrote the worst part for himself. The only pure victim in the history of the world was Jesus. The only person who absolutely, in the absolute sense, got a raw deal was Jesus. The only one who suffered completely unfairly was Jesus. He had the worst part of all. And yet God, who wrote this story, turned the worst part of all into the best part of all. The best part came precisely through the worst part. The part with the deepest sorrow became the part with the deepest laughter. The part with the deepest anguish became the part with the deepest joy. It was for the joy set before him, it says in Hebrews 12, that Jesus endured the cross. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me, Jesus played in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew the one who wrote the story, and Jesus, as God the Son, had a part in writing this story. But Jesus, as a man, had to trust the one who wrote the story. Because the one who wrote the story has entered into the story and has taken the worst part, which has turned into the best part, then I can trust him with my part. And I can trust him with the parts of all those I love. Yes? Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.